If you would, please open your copy of God's Word with me to Joshua chapter 22, where we'll be continuing to work through the book of Joshua together. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's Word from Joshua 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to the one half tribe, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with much, very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses." And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the whole people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. 
If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be to us or to our descendants in the time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain, or grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord." Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless the preaching of it tonight, Lord. We ask that you would help us to dwell in unity and faithfulness, and that you would help us to look to your son Jesus always for strength and for faithfulness, for unity, for all that we need, Lord. God, I ask that you would be with us tonight. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays that future believers, including us, would have unity with one another. But I, I can look around the world quite often at those who claim the name of Christ, and we often don't appear to be unified. See, our churches have split and broken several times throughout the past 2,000 years. Now, some splits have been necessary, but others have been quite sorrowful. But there has also been several attempts to create unity among those who claim to be Christians. So one example of this is in the 1940s. They attempted to create something called, well, they created something called the World Council of Churches. And it began as an attempt to mimic the League of Nations. Uh, now, at first glance, it may have seemed like a good thing. Uh, churches partnering with other churches sounds good. Uh, however, as you take a closer look at this particular example, you see that its members and leaders include female pastors, homosexual ministers, those who deny the canon, those who deny salvation by faith alone. So I guess you can say that this group was formed to have unity, 
but I don't think that's the type of unity that Jesus had in mind. John 17, verse 8 says this, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. See, some Christians have unity, but no faithfulness. But then I look around at some of the denominations and individual churches that hold to the true doctrines of the faith, the inerrancy of scripture, the deity of Christ. And in some of these cases, we see so much conflict and distrust and lack of evangelistic zeal and just overall plain disunity. And so at times it can seem like we're stuck. But Joshua 22 helps us to see a profoundly simple truth that Christians of every background easily forget. True unity is always found in faithfulness to Jesus. True unity is always found in faithfulness to Yahweh. See, Joshua 22 begins the last major section of the book of Joshua. Uh, They've taken possession of the land, and now they're settling the land. They're receiving their final charges and ending this era of history for the people of God. Joshua 21 ends with a word about the faithfulness of Yahweh, and now we're prompted, the people are prompted to respond to Yahweh's faithfulness with faithfulness. But however, as they attempt to achieve this faithfulness, as we saw from our reading, conflict was awaiting them. And so now we're going to briefly look at this story in four main movements as we contemplate the important relationship of faithfulness and unity. First, we're going to look at the eastern tribes' commendation. Second, the western tribes' concern for faithfulness. Third, the eastern tribes' concern for unity. And finally, Yahweh's conflict resolution. And we look at all this in order to remember that true unity is always found in faithfulness to Yahweh. As we look at verses 1 through 8 in our first section, the Eastern Tribes' commendation, we, we will learn that we must know that faithfulness and unity are possible. See, in Joshua 1, as Joshua was preparing to lead the people into the Promised Land in order to conquer the Canaanites, he reminded the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that although Moses had allowed them to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan, meaning that they were not technically in the land of Canaan, they were still commanded to send their men to fight with their brothers to conquer Canaan for the other tribes. And so the geography of this story truly matters. See, at the start of chapter 22, the land has been conquered, but the nation of Israel now had the Jordan River separating these two and a half tribes on the east from the other nine and a half tribes on the west. And so nonetheless, in these first eight verses, Joshua commends those two and a half tribes for keeping true to their word. And he acknowledges the rest that Yahweh has provided them. He says in verse two, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. And he continues, and after Joshua commends the eastern tribe, he also reminds them of the commandments of Yahweh. In verse five, See, but at this point, we aren't left suspecting that they're going to become unfaithful. In fact, what their service to the people of God had shown up to this point was that faithfulness and obedience was truly a goal that they had strived to achieve. In 1 John 2, verse 1, John says that he was writing that letter to the believers, so that you may not sin. See, faithfulness by the power of the Spirit 
is an option for the people of God to pursue. And that was the route that God had led the eastern tribes through. And so in verse 8, the tribes divide up the spoil of the land of Canaan, and now the, the two and a half tribes depart in peace toward their new home in Gilead. As verse 9 says, they do this by command of the Lord through Moses. And so these tribes, by the hand of God, throughout the book of Joshua, had accomplished what seemed nearly impossible. They had shed blood together, they had conquered together, and out of this dangerous obedience to God, they had achieved both faithfulness and unity. They obeyed God together. Do we as the church today actually believe that faithfulness and unity are possible through the Holy Spirit? See, we preach the words of Jesus in, in the high priestly prayer, and we hear those commands of faithfulness and unity, but sometimes we can be tempted to just think to ourselves, well, once we're in heaven, that'll be nice. See, we, we, we tend to act sometimes like a miserable married couple. We say stuff like, yeah, I love her, I, I guess, but, you know, it's never going to change. Our marriage is always going to be this way. That's how we seem to look at the faithfulness and the unity of Christ's bride here on earth. And, and now, there, there, of course, is some truth. We will not reach the full perfection of faithfulness and unity here. But as Christians, we do not despair. But we believe God's word when he says we are to pursue faithfulness and unity in Christ. And so Jesus calls us away from despair and hopelessness. Not because he wants us to chase after the impossible, but because he commands us to lean on him for everything. And so we must know that faithfulness and unity are possible if we rely on Christ. And now I want to look at the second movement of our text, the Western tribes concern for faithfulness in verses 9 through 20. See, here we see the beginning of what could have been a very terrible conflict. Despite what would end up being a misunderstanding, we can learn from these western tribes that we must be concerned that God's people remain faithful. We must be concerned that God's people remain faithful. See, the eastern tribes had determined to build an altar by the Jordan. And at this point in the narrative, we are left in suspense as to why. Verse 10 says that this altar was of an imposing size, and it was actually built on the Canaanite side of the Jordan, but was of such a size and prominence that the eastern tribes could look at it from their position, from their side. And so immediately, the people of Israel heard about this imposing altar and in zeal for Yahweh, they prepared to go to war against the two and a half tribes. See, the western tribes were concerned for the purity of the worship of God. They knew that sacrifices were only to be made at the altar appointed by God, not at some random altar constructed by the eastern tribes. So they saw this altar and assumed, well, it must be being used like an altar is typically used for, being, for sacrifices. And they knew that these sacrifices would be unfaithful. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Israel is commanded by God to only make sacrifices where God has told them to. One commentator says this about the situation. He says, to oversimplify it, it meant one altar, one faith, one people. The Western tribes were actually demonstrating spiritual health through the zeal to annihilate any false worship of God. 
They knew that false worship was a surefire way to receive judgment from God. They appeal to the past for proof of this. In verse 17, they reference the sin at Peor, which occurred in Numbers 25 that caused a great plague to go through the nation until Phineas, the zealous priest, intervened. Uh, in verse 20 of our chapter, they reference the sin of Achan from Joshua chapter 7 and remind the people that when Achan sinned against God, he alone didn't suffer, but his family died along with him. In other words, if the eastern tribes are unfaithful, judgment may be around the corner for the western tribes as well. And so they take this matter seriously. We must ask ourselves if we see a sort of zeal and passion for pure worship and piety today. See, all throughout the world, there are those who claim the name of Christ and yet profane him in their worship through our practices and through ways that we, we disobey him in our worship. Many use idolatrous images or they, they have improper practices. Many Christians are just looking to have a sort of experience with God rather than using worship as a time to actually praise him. See, when we see Christians breaking the commandments of God and making worship man-centered rather than God-centered and God-glorifying as it ought to be, it should make us zealous for God's commandments and zealous for the gospel of Christ, the gospel that frees us from our false practices. But I don't want us to believe that our zeal would give us warrant to be brutal with our mistaken brothers and sisters. Because verse 19 reminds us that we must hold out the offer of repentance in these situations. See, they don't go straight to war. They prepare for war, hoping it wouldn't have to happen, and they extend an offer of repentance. This is why things like church discipline matter so much that our, the shepherds of our church are commanded to call sheep to repentance and through discipline offer an opportunity for restoration. And so here, the Western tribes so lovingly desire the faithfulness of their Eastern brethren that they are even willing to give up part of their own land for them to occupy so that they may be near the true altar of God. They offer to share the land that they had fought for with these, these tribes. See, being truly concerned for faithfulness looks like being prepared for battle, but also, and especially, extending the offer of forgiveness and being willing to make sacrifices so that others may better pursue the faithfulness of God. We must remember that Christ himself made the ultimate sacrifice, giving up his own life so that sinners may come to repentance. And we must be willing to pursue that kind of zeal to help fellow sinners strive towards obedience and grace so that many may receive the free gift of forgiveness. Even this morning, as Pastor Caleb preached, we were reminded that the gospel is for outsiders. And so if your heart is tempted to believe that there are some who are too far gone to receive the gospel or too far away to reach repentance, even within the church, you must remember that you yourselves were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And so is your heart so concerned for faithfulness to God that you're willing to make sacrifices to help others pursue true faithfulness to him? Now let's look at our third movement of the text in verses 21 through 29. We see the Eastern tribe's concern for unity. And here we're going to see that we must be concerned that God's people remain unified. See, the Eastern tribes immediately begin to explain themselves. They said that we had built this large altar on the western side of the Jordan and made it so massive 
so that it could be a reminder that we are all worshiping the true God together. See, in their time, the Jordan River would have been seen as a huge barrier to them. It was more than 160 miles long, hundreds of feet below sea, levels at, below sea level at some points. They, they didn't have the capability to build a structure, you know, like the spillway in Brandon in order to just cross it easily. Uh, Ralph Davis says that they may view the Jordan River as a Berlin Wall that divided their nation. And so the eastern tribes feared that this Berlin Wall would one day cause the other tribes to forget about them and cause disunity in Israel. And so in a way, all the tribes shared the same concern. They wanted to proclaim their loyalty to the true God, to Yahweh. See, fidelity, faithfulness, is only possible when unity is a main priority. For a husband and wife to truly express their faithfulness to one another, for example, they must be unified. Uh, faithfulness is not only defined as not betraying another person's trust, but it's also about being united. If a husband and not wife were married for years and never cheated on each other, never committed adultery, you would rightfully say that they've remained faithful throughout their marriage. However, if they never talk except to argue with one another, and they never say anything kind to each other, and their house is filled with tension and fear— you could say that they have been faithful by not committing adultery, but you wouldn't look at their marriage and say, that's a faithful marriage. See, in verse 22, when they proclaim the name of Yahweh, you can see that the people feel scattered by this accusation. They wanted this altar to be a witness to them so that their children could one day continue in the free worship of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we must not be ignorant of the fact that conflict will arise in the body of Christ on earth even today. Sometimes it may arise from us sinning against each other, and sometimes it may arise from misunderstandings. But nevertheless, we must learn to deal with our conflicts in such a way so as to not fracture the body of Christ. See, we cannot settle for quietly shuffling to a different pew to get away from someone who just rubs us the wrong way. Or we can't be content with slanderous whispers occurring behind closed doors. The eastern tribes were wise enough to know that small fractures of disunity may create great barriers over time. See, they said, they'd say something like, if the western tribes start to think badly of us now or forget about us, by the time it's our grandchildren's time to worship at the Lord's altar, they may no longer be welcome. And our conflicts work the same way. These conflicts continue to increase, and they don't only cause strife for the present generation, but they have long-term effects on the health of a church, the health of a denomination, and the health of the Christian body at large. And so a true pursuit of unity in the church would be one in which we all look at the next generation of Christians and earnestly strive for them to be able to purely worship with one another. And the only way that happens is if we work together now to heal the disunity that we sense wherever we may find it, wherever we may sniff it out, that we may, that we may shut down the disunity in our church, in our denomination, and in the faith. And so let's now very briefly look at the final movement of our text, Yahweh's conflict resolution in verses 30 through 34. And we must finally know that faithfulness and unity are found in Jesus Christ alone. See, at this point, both sides are pleased with the outcome. They've cleared the air, they've figured out what has gone wrong, and in verse 33, they acknowledge that the presence of faithfulness in this situation is actually an indicator of the presence of Yahweh himself. 
And so the delegates from the Western tribes return home and they share the news and the people rejoice. And they say that this altar is a witness that Yahweh is God. And this is paralleled by the phrase in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. See, the resolution of this conflict brought unity in Yahweh, the God of peace. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. See, throughout church history, we've seen the church have conflicts, but oftentimes come together to solve their conflicts, to encounter unfaithfulness in their churches, to, to form councils, to encounter it, and to come together more unified and more faithful. But this also works in our personal relationships. I, I remember a time when I was in college, I was going through a very uh, shy period of my life. I was feeling quite shy when I first moved from small town Hartville, Ohio to downtown Chicago. And I had some close friends on my floor, but I remember during that first year that I felt left out quite often. Um, I didn't get as many invites as I was expecting with some of the people I considered my close friends, and that eventually caused some conflicts between us. And eventually we decided we should sit down and talk about these things. We're having some conflicts, we need to sit down and talk. And what we discovered was that my shyness was prompting them to not extend an invitation because they thought I didn't want to be invited. And their lack of an invitation was making me all the more shy. And through that conversation, what, we actually what actually happened is that we became more faithful friends and we became more unified because we knew the other one's weaknesses and we knew what we needed to do in order to come together. And even in our churches, Christ uses conflict and misunderstandings in the lives of believers to proclaim the message of the gospel. So now we must ask ourselves, what must we do as modern-day believers when we see unfaithfulness or disunity? First, we must ask ourselves, are we partially to blame in any of this unfaithfulness or disunity? Jesus says that we must first pull out the log in our own eyes, and often we can fail to see our own failings. We assume that it is the other person's fault, that they are mistaken. But there are many times that we need to take a moment and evaluate our own position in order to further pursue unity and faithfulness in the body of Christ. So we must ask ourselves, what role are we playing in this? But then second, when encountering unfaithfulness and disunity wherever we encounter it in the church, we must ask, how can I lovingly address this situation with the word of God? Because unfaithfulness must be combated with the sword of the Spirit. Now, there will be times when we confront someone with false beliefs or we try to repair disunity, and it may not work. There may not be repentance. There may not be reunification that we see immediately. And in those cases, we simply do what Christians have always been called to do, proclaim the gospel to sinful ears. Proclaim the gospel to sinful ears. And so, above all, we also must be willing to go on our knees to repent and to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus. Because thanks be to God who has torn down the wall of hostility, who has redeemed us from unfaithfulness and has unified us to his faithful son, Jesus, because he is the only one who has been perfectly faithful and has been eternally unified to the Father. And so it is in him alone that we may find peace. It is in him alone that we see the faithfulness of this world pass away. It is him alone that we see our worldly conflicts fade away. It is in Christ alone that we find our peace and that we find our hope. And so we, may we also find 
all our unity and faithfulness in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for allowing us to dive into your word tonight to see what it is that you would teach us. God, we ask that you would help us as a church to be faithful and to be unified, Lord that you would keep us free from conflicts, that you would keep us free from unfaithfulness, Lord. And God, if there is a hint or even a slight trickle of unfaithfulness or disunity, even in our own local body or presbytery denomination, Lord, would you, would you end it? Would you allow us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to use us to repair whatever is broken within your body so that at the end we may be better proclaimed, better presented to you as your bride? We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.